market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast where our favourite season is earnings season and our favourite colour, of course, is the colour of money. Boom, Tish. I'm Andrew Page and with me is Scott Phillips. G'day, Andrew. G'day, Fools. Thanks for listening. Today on the podcast, what the hell happened to Dick Smith and why do they have 12 years worth of batteries? Also, what Warren Buffett's favourite measure says about investing on the ASX right now. And finally, break out the presents. The Australian economic boom continues celebrating its 25-year jubilee without a recession. So let's start with Dick Smith. Scott, we're starting at the very top, right? The very, very top here. Okay, so it's, it's an absolutely epic story here. So the electronics chain started by Venturer slash businessman of the same name. It was then sold to Woolies. Woolies was absolutely pilloried for selling the company to private equity. They got about $30 million for it. Not long after that, though, private equity guys managed to float it on the ASX for $500 million. Insert the cha-ching sound right here. Cha-ching. So a really wonderful return for them, at least. But then things all started to go horribly wrong. And the company has since delisted. The administrators are in. What went wrong? Jeez. About everything, Andrew. Just about everything that could go wrong went wrong. Didn't it? I think if we if we break this back, look, you know, Woolies was was bagged for only, you know, getting 30 million bucks for the business. They got a little bit more in earn out when, when the private equity guys bought the rest of it, but nowhere near the half a billion dollars that the private equity guys no. managed to get for the business themselves no. when they floated on the ASX just a couple of years later. Now these guys had a fantastic strategy. It was going to be basically success via growth. Mm-hmm. They opened a whole lot more stores. They even opened a new chain. I can't remember the brand now. It was that that fleeting. Um, they went to David Jones. They're in the David right. Jones electronics businesses. Yeah. Um, yeah, Dick Smith were, were, were absolutely growing at a rate of knots, making mm-hmm. Harvey Norman and JV Hi-Fi look silly in the short term. Um, at the time, I think I remember Jerry Harvey saying, how can they possibly do this? This can't be right. And mm-hmm. uh, as Jerry uh, tends to do, he's uh, people laugh at him in the short term, in the, in the long term. He was he on the money, right. wasn't he? Look, the, the, the reality is, mate, Dick Smith ran out of cash. They literally, you know, we talk, people say small businesses. 90% of small business failures happens because businesses can't manage cash flows. Well, it happens to big businesses as well. And this was exactly what brought Dick Smith down. There's this wonderful saying that says, you know, um, you can grow yourself broke, yeah. which which sounds really ironic. Yep. You know, if no, things are going really well and you know, Dick Smith, they were opening up more and more stores. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as you said, expanding in different brands, you know, was, things were going really, really, really well, but it all started to come undone and, and it really happened. There was a whole bunch of things lining up here. So same store sales took a huge fall. They were buying more and more inventory. Um, we'll come back to that point in, in a minute. Um, they were continuing to pay very high dividends to shareholders, but the cash, the actual cash wasn't there. So they were borrowing more and more and more money to do that. Now you can do that for a time. Sooner or later, it catches up to you. Yeah, here's the problem with, with growing yourself broke. So let's say you buy you buy something for a buck. Let's call it a can of tuna for the mm-hmm. sake of the exercise. Now when you sell that can of tuna, you make 20 cents profit. Okay. But if you're growing and you're doubling every year, mm. you've got to buy two cans of tuna. Now you've, you've bought one for a buck, you sold it for $1.20. Mm. You got to buy two next time, so yeah. you get the dollar twenty. You got to buy two cans. So you're eighty cents in the hole. Yeah, you got to sell that before you can make more money back. So the faster you grow, if you grow faster than your margins allow, yep. you need greater and greater access to, to debt, effectively yep. to capital. So yep. normally that means going back to the banks and saying, "Look, this business is great, but I can't keep up with demand. If I want to keep my mm. shelves full, if I want to keep stocking it up mm. with cans of tuna or phones or electronics or whatever it is you're doing, you've got to find enough access to capital and make enough money on that capital to really to support the business's growth." And this was the Dick Smith story. In Dick Smith's case. They were trying to borrow money from suppliers, not from banks because it's cheap debt, but that's what brought them undone. How do you borrow money from a supplier? I'm Dick Smiths and you're selling batteries because batteries was in, was in the papers recently. They bought 12 years worth of batteries. (laughs) 
that's a lot of remote controls you've got to try and hope people use. So, so how, how, do, how does that work? How am I borrowing money off you? If I'm just, you know, you're a battery man, if you're Panasonic, say, I'm buying a bunch of batteries. How are you lending me money? This is going to be great radio. Andrew. We're going to go through payment terms to suppliers 101. <laughs> Strap yourselves and, in. We're going to try and do it in an entertaining fashion. Let me, let me see if I can, if I can do this for you. You can give me grades. No afterwards. pressure. No, no pressure. Look, the, the story basically goes that when you buy something, if you're Dick Smith and you're buying batteries from, say, Panasonic, which it was in this case, you normally have to pay Panasonic 30 days later. So you, mm-hmm. you negotiate a deal and say, look, Dick, Dick Smith says, look, I'm big. And so I'm not going to pay you straight up front. I'm not going to pay you cash and delivery. You send me a bill and I'll pay you in 30 days mm-hmm. time. Right? Okay. So far, so good. That's yep. what happens normally. Happens a lot. So yep. you get access to that stock for 30 days. You mm-hmm. can actually sell it first and then pay them. Right. So Woolies, for example, does exactly that. They actually pay their suppliers after they've sold the stock, nice. which is a nice business to have. Yep. Dick Smith doesn't move stock quite so quickly, but that's their basic model. Mm. Now, over Christmas, because of the big trading period, Dick Smith went back to his supplier and said, look, we're going to buy a truckload of stuff from you guys, mm-hmm. but we're not going to pay you in a month. We're going to pay you in three months. No, even so better. we're going to buy it in November, buy it in December. We're not going to pay you until January or February. Right. We're going to push this out as far as we can. Now, if that means- So you're you get, financing my inventory. Right. So I get three months to sell this stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't pay you a cent. And in theory, if I can sell that before I pay you, not only are you financing my inventory, I actually get to make money on that. I get to put that in the bank and mm-hmm. wait and pay you later. Mm-hmm. Now, that's what every retailer does, right? Sure. The problem with Dick Smith is they had these fantastically grandiose plans of growing. Not only that, they decided as a corporate strategy to use these things. They call rebates in the papers, call mm. them what you want. They decided to use this exact strategy to fund their entire business model. Mm. What that meant, though, in, in Dick Smith's case. Why is case, that bad, though? That's well, great, right? If you're buying the right stuff. Right. Now, I don't think anyone's going to sit here and say, buying 12 years of batteries was a fantastic idea because we saved 5% on, yeah. the, on the, you know, we've got an extra month to pay. Yeah. So, well, if you get an extra month to pay, we've got 12 years worth of batteries. Yeah. You don't need me to tell that doesn't line up exactly. Yeah. So this yeah. was the problem. It's a they lot bought. of cash invested and sunk in there, isn't it? They let the strategy, mm. they let the rebate strategy, the saving strategy drive the business rather than customer demand. You are far better to buy something on 30 days terms you can sell quickly than buying 12 years of batteries, even if you get six months to pay for them. You're still in the hole for the next 11 and a half years. So what I want to know, Scott, is that there's, there's, this is an opportunity for a lesson as I see it. I'm exactly. an investor. These things happen from time to time. What could have I done as a savvy investor to see this potential before it happened, to sell my shares if I own them before everything went pear-shaped? There's three quick answers to that, Andrew. There's two quick ones and one that takes a little bit longer. The first is if you're ever buying a company that private equity are floating, be very, <laughs> yeah, very, be very careful. careful. Yeah. Frankly, these guys, are, these guys aren't mugs, right? These are some of the smartest really guys in the smart finance industry. Yep. And they're saying to you, please take my shares off me. Yeah, I want the cash. You, you can right, have the right. shares. And you kind of yeah. think, well, so they're not doing me a favor by selling me those shares. Not. Now, right. they're not necessarily trying to screw you either, by the way, but they're basically saying, I don't, I don't want these shares anymore. Yep. I want you to pay me a lot of money and take them off my hands. Yeah. So that's the first thing. Yep. Second thing is when you're thinking about stories that are in the end are too good to be true, but even sound a little bit too good to be true, be very, very careful. Mm. To think that Dick Smith could have suddenly come up with a wonderful strategy that all of a sudden beat Jerry Harvey, who's been doing this for 40 years, mm. beat JB Hi-Fi, who's been an absolute outstanding yeah, success for 20 or 30 really years. Well. Yep. Dick Smith have all of a sudden got some magic formula that changes the game. Yeah. It's incredibly, incredibly, incredibly unlikely. Mm. So that, you know, have, keep you a bit of skepticism, not even, not even cynicism, just literally saying, hang on, does this new fly-by-night business, well, it's an old business, but this was a sleepy old electronic store under mm. Woolies. Yeah. So I think the private equity could all of a sudden come up with something wonderful that changes mm. the story. Mm. I tell you what, that's a, that's a, that's a big gut. So yeah. that's the second one. Yeah. Now, thirdly, investors should really, and stay, stay with me here again, fools, investors need to have a quick look at the financials of any stock they're buying. Absolutely. If you bought, if you looked at Dick Smith's financials, what you would have seen is a massive buildup of inventory, mm-hmm. that 12 years of batteries you talked about, yep. and a massive buildup of accounts payable, the amount of money they've got to pay to mm-hmm. those suppliers mm-hmm. when the bills finally fall due. Yep. Now think about it. If you simply say to, say to a supplier, I'll pay you in three months, I'll sell the stock now, 
you don't actually you don't actually you don't account for that stock on the PL anywhere. Mm. It's a balance sheet item, right? So again, we won't get too detailed here, but they swap cash, which is an asset, mm. for stock, which is an asset. Mm. There's no PL impact, there's no profit impact. Mm. But if you sell that stock, even some of that stock in the next month, mm. you get to bank that profit as yes. profit. Yes. So you've got a whole lot of stock, which is a massive liability down the track, but you don't record that in your PL anywhere. You mm. simply record the sales you make today. Mm. So what was happening is their balance sheet was blowing up. They had heaps of inventory, heaps of accounts payable, and they had a lot of profit, but that wasn't being matched. Any significant increase in inventory over time is a massive red flag for investors. Be very, very careful at how much stock a company has, how much inventory they carry, how much, you know, in accounts payable. So that's basically the debts they've got to pay to their suppliers. Mm. When those things grow at a faster rate than sales, that should be a very significant red flag anytime, mm. but particularly for a retailer. Mm. And the good companies, when there are, of course, mitigating circumstances, they're out there, they're not too common, but it's it's always a question of you know management addressing this and at least telling you what's going on here. And if they're particularly quiet on that front, it absolutely is a red flag. Not only that, they're, act they're actively driving that as a strategy. Yeah, I think you've just yeah. got, if it seems too good to be true, you know what, it probably it is. It probably is. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Let's talk about Warren Buffett. From the ridiculous to the sublime, Andrew. <laughs> Mr. Buffett. Uh, who, the, who the hell is this guy? Warren Buffett, an 82-year-old native of Omaha, Nebraska, in the Midwest of the US, who turned $100,000 into $60 billion bucks. What's that average out to? That's about 20% a year. And you think, you know what? This is a, this is a good lesson, by the way. 20% sounds good, right? It is. But if you've got hundred grand, you get 120 at the end of the year, you think, well, that's not exactly life-changing. If you do that often enough for long enough, a mm. hundred grand turns into $60 billion. That's after, by the way, he's given a truckload of cash to charity. It's compounding um, for it's you. It's a spectacular, exactly what, that's, you know, that's exactly right, Andrew. It's compounding writ large. So he's, he knows what he's talking about when the it comes to investing. The world's greatest ever investor, absolutely. He's got this thing, I don't know if he, he obviously didn't call it this, but it's become known as the Buffett Ratio. <laughs> he's, not, he's not that grandiose. He would, he's not, <laughs> he not really egotistical, no, no. But a while back he said, the time to buy stocks is when the ratio between the, the value of the stock market relative to a country's GDP is around about 0 0.7, 0 0.8 or so. Okay, let's, so, let's break this down for a sec. The, the value of a company's shares. Yes, so it's market cap. Right, so if we add up all the all the, all the market value of every company listed in the ASX, we yep. get a number. Yep, we okay. get a very large number. Very large number, yes. But we divide it by another very large number, which is the country's gross domestic product. The which value is? of all the goods and services produced in a nation in a particular year. Right. So it's kind of like, for those that are familiar with the P-E ratio, it's kind of that, except writ large across the whole market and the whole economy. So Not it's so one like of it. these, Buffett, he's, he's, just, he's got this, this, these, these lovely little rules of thumb which you don't want to get too specific with, but they're certainly handy pointers. And, and we should say, he's not saying there's a direct correlate, a direct relationship between these two. There's no, nothing cause and effect about it. Mm. But as a general rule, it's indicative of when the market is undervalued, overvalued, or pretty fairly valued. You're just right? paying, a, yeah, the market's just not that expensive relative to what the economy is producing. Right. And so it, it was in the paper the other day, someone's calculated for the Aussie market. They've taken the value of the ASX 200, essentially the whole market, and uh, in terms of market cap at least, yep. divided that by GDP. And they've got a figure of about, uh, where are we here, Scott? They've got a figure of- 0 0.92, Andrew. Thank you. I'm glad you can find it. 0 0.92. Now that's about bang on the average over the last 10 years. Right. 
it's not that expensive. And it was interesting, I thought, because we've heard, heard a lot of stuff lately about how expensive markets are. Mm -hmm. So if you want to talk about the PE ratio we mentioned before, price relative to earnings, yes. again, over the whole market, it's about 16 at this point in time. Okay. And how does that compare to the average? It's about 14 and a half, the okay. average. So, so again, on that basis, it seems a bit expensive. Okay. This other way of looking at it's actually sort of said, yes, look, again, it was above what Buffett was saying, this is a great time to buy. But certainly nowhere near the peaks we've seen in the past. Not right before the, the uh, 1987 stock market crash, the Buffett ratio was at 1.2. In 2007, before we saw the Great Recession or the, the, the GFC, uh, it was at 1.5. Wow. So we really are a distance away from that. So the question I want to ask to you, is the market good value at the moment? Is now the time to buy? <laughs> Great question. That's the easy question. I think you're going to ask me a hard one. Should I put my entire life savings in the stock market, right, based on a Buffett ratio? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, basically. Look, I think there's there's a couple of there's a couple of ways we can address this. The first is look, basically the PE and the Buffett ratio are giving us different numbers right now. The PE says markets are above average in terms of in terms of value. The Buffett ratio is slightly below average, or at least below fair value. What Buffett would say, if if 1.0 is fair value, 0.9 is you know it, it's a, it's a decent discount yeah. without being super cheap. Yeah. Um, uh, the honest, the honest answer is neither of these numbers should be taken in isolation and primarily for two reasons. The first is that you're not buying the market unless you're buying only an index fund. Yeah. You're not buying the market. And so when you think about, you, you see on the, on the news every night, you hear on the radio every day, oh, the market closed half a percent lower at whatever, or the market closed 0.6% higher at whatever. That's interesting. But unless you own every company on the market in the same proportion as the market, yeah. then you're not getting the market return. You're getting something different. For yeah. that. So yeah. the first There's is, a lot of extremes within that average. Right. So yeah. the first is ignore the market. Unless you're buying an index fund, and we think you should in certain circumstances, by the way, but unless you actually are, just ignore it. It's not about the market. It's about the shares that you own. But it's a good rule of thumb though, right? It's like generally speaking, on average, things aren't that badly priced. Now could be a good time to invest, right? Go, go on and do your due diligence, do the rest of it. But but certainly that's it's an interesting pointer it can be. to value. There were some interesting companies you could have bought at the peak of the GFC and still done incredibly well. <laughs> on the same token, there are a whole lot of companies you could have bought at the bottom of the trough in 2009 and done incredibly poorly. Mm -hmm. So don't just take the market average and say, therefore I should buy everything because the market's cheap or everything because the market is expensive or sell everything because the market's expensive. Yeah. There are, yes, on average, the market is either cheap or expensive. But there's always value out there to be found for the enterprising investor. You know, the problem I find with these kinds of things is that we often look at these kinds of ratios and we think, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to be the, the smart guy. Um, when the next panic, the next, the next bear market occurs, I'm going to be the guy who runs in there and hoovers up all the shares that are really, really cheap. I'm not going to be one of the lemmings that only buys when the market's super high and then sells when it's super low. So I'm going to look at a ratio like that and I'm going to go, Hey, it's not too bad. I'm going to wait till it gets really low and then that's what I'm going to buy. Now, it yep. sounds really smart and, it's, and you know, it, it is at a certain level, but the problem with it is this, is that by the time that opportunity comes along, there is potentially a huge opportunity cost in the meantime. Yep. If you take seven years for that to happen, yep. there's a huge amount of money you've left on the table uh, as a result of that. One of the most stupid things you can ever hear in the market is someone who says, I'm going to buy on a pullback. Right. I'm going to wait till the price falls 5% then I'll buy the shares. If the shares go up 10 or 20 or 30% before it falls 5%, yeah, yeah. you're going to wait you're for that. Yeah. You're absolutely, you are stark raving mad. Buying on dips is one of those things that in theory makes sense. Or doesn't in theory, it, on the surface makes sense. 
is absolutely useless as an investing well, tool. Well, it also Anyone assumes you that. know it's going to be a dip and not the start of something oh. that's going to fall, you know, keep falling. You don't Tell know, me, right? I, it, absolute madness. Nonsense. You are completely crazy. Well, so, here's the other here's the other problem with it as well. Is not only that, but then let's say the the crash does come. The the, the magic Buffett ratio goes to 0.6. You know, yes. an unheard of low. Things are at screaming value. Even though you said a few years ago, you know what? When that happens, I'm going to buy. <laughs> yep. I guarantee, and this isn't a criticism. This is just human nature, yep. and we all do it. I guarantee you that when that happens, you will be so let's, let's think about the, the world that we would have to be mm -hmm. living in for that to happen. Mm -hmm. There would be red ink everywhere, you know, investment bankers jumping out of windows <laughs> and you're just really, really scary stuff. Yep. And, and you, you, I would, I would posit that the majority of people would not act in the way they envisaged they would. Correct. And, and you will start rationalizing again. You'll say, well, I might just wait for things to start coming up a little bit more before I buy. Yep, I think that's exactly right, Ram. This is this is the challenge. We must, as an investment community, as investors, buy. Look, the best time to buy is almost certainly now. Quite frankly, if you've got money to invest, it's almost always a good idea to keep investing it because you take out the uncertainty. Yes, in hindsight, there'll be better and worse times to invest, but at the time you can't know whether that's going to be one of those. You know, is today a great time or a terrible time? We won't know that for ten years. Yeah. And by the time you've waited ten years to find out, on average, you'll be much much worse off if you wait. Keep investing, keep investing right through the cycle. When you've got put aside some money every week, every month, every quarter, when you get paid and invest that money regularly in the market, it is the smartest, simplest and best way to invest. Look, we'll move on, but I just have to mention this. We started off this segment by talking about Buffett and we should end on that as well. He's also one who talks a lot extensively, in fact, and repeatedly about the, the pointlessness of trying to time the market. Indeed. Despite his phenomenal wealth creation, he's never tried to do it. It's just this idea of buying great companies at great prices and letting time do all the work. And frankly, Andrew, the other thing is he's never used a macro factor to decide when to buy. He doesn't look at recessions. He doesn't look at global economic pictures. Yeah. He just buys companies at a good value. He's never, ever, ever used the macro picture. That's all we read about in the paper. Yeah. He's never used that to decide when to invest. He's just bought quality businesses when they're available at good prices, as you say. Yep. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Okay, so uh, we passed a bit of a milestone. Speaking of macro, yeah. Speaking of macro, um, the uh, past week, we have now had 100 quarters in this country without a recession. But Andrew, the economy is going terribly. Just read the papers. <laughs> it Ask is. the cab driver. We've, Things are terrible We've out talked there. about this before, haven't we? Well, maybe once or twice. Um, uh, look, it, it, it's one of these things. Now, let's, 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 let's take a step back. A recession is technically defined as two quarters of negative growth. And here again, we're talking about GDP. Only economists could have negative growth, by the way. <laughs> negative. It sounds a bit like an oxymoron. Exactly. It is. So we've, got, we've had two negative quarters. Mm -hmm. Over that 100 stretch, but none they they, have, they weren't consecutive. Therefore, Correct. we haven't had a recession. Correct. So 100 quarters. That's 25 years without a recession. There is no 45 year old who has in their working lives experienced a recession. It's amazing. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, I haven't. Just amazing. Um, here's the thing. Yep. We're actually uh, um, Aussie, 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 go, go, go. <laughs> we could we could potentially be um on the cusp of breaking a world record. With world record. We were good at those things. Was it the Norwegians? It was the Netherlands. Netherlands. Yes, that's right. It was the yes. ne they did 20... Almost 26. 103 quarters. Wow. So so we get four more quarters, one more year. Yep. We're going to hold the record for the longest uninterrupted streak of economic growth in the modern era. Shame the economy is so bad, isn't it? <laughs> well, I'm going to flip this around. All right. Now, 
generally well, pessimism, pessimism warning here, folks. Pessimism warning inbound. So let's let's say that the average economic cycle tends to go for seven to ten years. Hypothetically, the the, the distance between recessions or distance between yep. booms, whatever yep. you yep. whatever you prefer. If we're knocking on the door of, well, if we've just passed 25 years, we're yes. knocking on the door of a world record. Yes. Does that mean that we are closer to a recession than what we would have been? Yes. By definition, right? But so, every, so every, every so day, maybe, every day you go without, without a recession, you are by definition a day closer to the next one. Yeah. So do, do I, do I not need to treat this news with a bit of caution? No. Look, you know, your very point is exactly right. If you'd said the average is seven years, mm. You would have been back in, let's say, 25 years from now, 1991. In 1998, you would have said, time to get out of the market. Yeah. Going to be a, we, we've, be a never, we've never gone this long without and in 2000, it. Yeah. you would have said, oh, it's been nine years now. In 2005, you would have said, oh, it's been 14 years now. You could have spent your entire adult life saying, it's coming, it's coming. I'm going to get out of the market. This is ridiculous. And you would have absolutely missed out on one of the great wealth creation opportunities of all time. This has been a spectacular last 25 years in Australia for investors, for the economy, for workers, for businesses. It, there is a recession coming. Of course there is. And frankly, no one in their right mind would have said in 1991, it'll be 2016 without even the inkling of a recession. Right. We, people would have told you. Plus we'll have a global crazy. financial crisis in the meantime and a tech um, wreck and exactly. all the other things. Asian, Asian financial crisis. Exactly. Terrorism on wars. And on and on. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that, that's a, it is just a spectacularly good result. We were very, very, very lucky, quite frankly. We had some good micro and macroeconomic reforms mm. and both treasurers of both parties should be congratulated for some of those reforms. Yep. Floating of the dollar, the GST, superannuation, a whole lot of things. That mining boom. Well, that's that the other thing, right? Yep. So there was also a very nice mining boom in the middle of the GFC mm. that kept us afloat. So look, you know, we shouldn't pat ourselves on the back. We would have gone the same way as the rest of the world in 2008-9 had we not had a massive mining boom mm. and a northern neighbor that could take more iron ore than we could physically get out of the ground in, in a year. So yep. those things were, were wonderful. You know, we shouldn't congratulate ourselves too much. But it's just a reminder that, you know what, these things have, have lives of their own, have minds of their own. And if you'd worried about the next recession coming, you could have spent the last decade and a half out of the market. Mm. And it would have been a completely crazy thing to do. Yeah. Now, you can say, well, it's been 24 years. We must be closer to the next one. Well, maybe we are, but maybe there's another five years. Mm. Maybe it's one. Maybe it's six months. Maybe it'll happen, yeah, tomorrow. But, but, maybe, but maybe we're 10 years away from mm. the next one. So trying to, trying to time it is just absolutely yeah, don't nuts. overthink it. Don't Worth saying, too, you know, Glenn Stevens retiring as RBA governor has done a very, very, very good job of running the Reserve Bank with effectively mm. a single button. Right, you can either yeah. raise, lower, or stay on hold. Yeah. Um, but more importantly than that, Glenn Stevens has been the voice of confidence, the voice of reason, the voice of optimism. Frankly, during these periods mm. of time, that really kept an even keel for the business and investment community during that period. Basically, reminded us that everything's okay. Both the Reserve Bank and the government stand ready to do what's required, and that's been enough to keep the ship afloat even during some of those tougher times. Yeah, well done, Glenn. And we'll keep you fools updated. Hopefully, we'll be talking in uh, a not-too-distant future about how we now hold the record for the longest streak of uneconomic. Uh, Tune of in. Economic in a year's time, we'll give you that update. Tune in. We better wrap it up there, Scott. Uh, listen, thanks, everyone, to listening. Remember, as always, you can subscribe to this podcast. All you need to do is either go to iTunes, if that's that's the uh, the, the ecosystem that you're in, or you can use a, a, an Android podcast app, of course. Uh, you can just go to the Triple M website as well, triplem.com.au forward slash podcast. And please give us a nice rating if you like what we're doing. That wraps it up. Thank you so much for joining me, Scott. Thank you, Andrew. Until next time, full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.